I think I better pray for us. <laughs> Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle within us the fire of your love. And may my words and our hearts together glorify you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. And all I have to say about that scripture is, what, what? Um, so I, I don't know how many of you are aware of a woman by the name of Beth Moore. Beth Moore is a highly popular evangelical Christian speaker and writer who recently announced her departure from the Southern Baptist Convention. And if you Google her name, you will find lots of articles about why she has chosen to leave the Southern Baptist Convention. Part of it has to do with uh, their, un their belief that the Bible supports complementarianism, uh, which means that men and women complement each other, but men have clear responsibilities and women have different responsibilities that support the men. Uh, and so she's made it clear that she's uh, standing over against that. And, and she also, uh, there was actually an article uh, that was um, titled, Is Beth Moore Preaching? And that's another controversial issue in, in all these articles. And there are many, many articles about Beth Moore. And the controversy is, is Beth Moore actually preaching? And everybody's got an opinion about that, including Beth Moore. Very recently, John MacArthur, another evangelical pastor and best-selling author, made some comments about Beth Moore, and these comments have now gone viral. They were made during a conference called Truth Matters. And MacArthur spoke uh, his response about Beth Moore. And his response was, Beth Moore, go home. Now, the implication of that is clear, right? That uh, as a woman, she needs to go home and take care of the home fires that are burning. He follows this up with saying, there's no case that can be made biblically for a woman preacher. Period. Paragraph. End of discussion. And to that... I remind you of what the United Church of Christ says, never place a period where God has placed a comma. Can I get an amen on that? Yes, that's right. And I'm going to see if I can give you the understanding that stands over and against what MacArthur said, that there is biblical uh, evidence for women preachers. And I hope that we can um, unpack that today. This Freedom Summer series is about how we read scripture and how we read it can either bind us or free us, can either judge us or help us to love ourselves and others. Can, and so that's why we're looking at all these things. The difficult passages, and, and James is right, that uh, you know nobody likes them nobody really wants to preach on them nobody really wants to teach them but if we will wrestle with them then we may well get the blessing as Jacob did to wrestle and wrestle with God until we get the blessing
So that's what I kind of want to do today. Years ago, uh, when I first came uh, to Dallas, back to Dallas to uh, pastor Cathedral of Hope, uh, I had the opportunity to attend a conference in Ch Chicago at Fourth Presbyterian Church called the Festival of Homiletics. It is essentially a preaching festival, and all the great preachers are always there. And that year, we heard Barbara Lundblad, who's a professor of preaching at Union Seminary in New York. In New York. Uh, we heard Tom Long, who is a preaching professor at Candler uh, Seminary in Atlanta, Georgia. We heard Fred Craddock, who was by then retired and considered one of the top 10 preachers in the, in the United States, and Barbara Brown Taylor, who also fit into that category, though she was, uh, she was a part of the Episcop Episcopal Church, and more. It was like a feast for five days, a feast for preachers, because we worshiped and heard somebody preach, and then somebody would lecture, and then we'd worship again, and somebody would lecture again, and it was incredible. Uh, on the last, next to last day of the Festival of Homiletics, a woman I had never heard of had the unenviable slot of following lunch with her lecture. Uh, it was near the end of the festival. We had heard all the great names of preaching. I mean, I'm talking all of them. Yvette Flunder, among others. I mean, just amazing. Her name is Dr. Anna Carter Florence, and she stepped into the pulpit, and my understanding of the role of women preachers has never been the same. She was amazing. She spoke about her research on preaching and how deep in the archives of her Presbyterian seminary she discovered documents about her denomination that told of women who were not allowed to preach from the pulpit in the church, so the women went outside and spoke on the steps of the church. And that for all practical purposes, in reading what they had to say, she knew that they were preaching. She read about how they were not allowed to call what they said, what they were doing as preaching. They weren't even allowed to describe it as preaching. But... They found a way where there was no way. God made a way where there was no way. And they began to call what they were doing testifying. They were testifying to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were testifying about their faith. They were witnessing to those who would stand there and listen to them about their understanding of their faith. Carter Florence went on then to unpack for us the testimony of Mary Magdalene about the resurrection of Jesus to the first apostles. I want to remind you about a bit of what we talked about last Sunday, which was how we read the Bible as progressive or liberal Christians. I don't, I don't know what you're comfortable with in calling yourself. I call myself a screaming liberal Christian, okay? Uh, you may not be comfortable with that, but that's how I understand myself. And, um, and I want to say some things we talked about was that as progressive Christians, we take the Bible seriously. We don't take it literally. It's not that some of the stories we, we, know, act, that we know actually happened, but we tend to broaden the sphere of how we understand the scriptures by 
taking them seriously, but not confining them to a literal translation that cannot breathe. And I believe that the Bible is intended to breathe with life, with the spirit. And we talked about uh, when we worship, we worship the God, our God, that the Bible points to. We don't worship the Bible. A lot of people call the Bible the Word of God, and that's fine. But And it is the words of God. But um, we see this more as a, a window, a door for us to step into and through in order to understand and draw closer to God and better understand how we got here and who we understand God to be. We seek to understand the Bible through a historical critical method, which is simply a way of saying that we look at the time, the circumstances, the culture, the person who is telling the story in which these original stories were initially told and then written down and then edited. And now we look at these stories and these scriptures in a way that breaks them open for those of us who are living in the 21st century. More than 2,000 years between the event of the resurrection and our lives. And so how do we as postmodern people understand these ancient, ancient words? What we do understand as the United Church of Christ is that God is still speaking. And that means that we can take these ancient texts and we can hear God speak through them to us in new ways. So let's first consider what is happening when Paul writes this first letter to his disciple Timothy. There is much debate among biblical scholars as to if Paul actually wrote or perhaps dictated this letter that was addressed to Timothy, one of his disciples. Though Timothy is spoken of in other books of the Bible, as in Acts, and is lauded by Paul in, in his letter to 1 Corinthians, which is believed to have been a letter actually written by Paul, still, regardless of who actually wrote the letter, it is one that is considered as exhortation, which means that the writer is offering urgent advice. There is an urgency of communication. It is clear that the writer is concerned about this church in Ephesus where Timothy is and what is going on there. Clearly, the letter was designed to combat the dissident, dissident, dissident teachings of insiders and the suspicion of outsiders in this church at, that Paul founded at Ephesus, which, by the way, is modern-day Turkey. The letter includes conventional philosophical arguments against those who are teaching in opposition to Paul. There are commendations on bad behavior and images of the church as the household of God. And Paul comments on what should be respectable behavior in the church in order to enhance the church's mission in the wider world. This is all that Paul is trying to do here. And I think Paul is looking and hearing about this church at Ephesus and thinking, they've gone off the rails a little bit. 
I got to pull them back in. They've got outsiders trying to teach things that are not accurate and insiders who are fighting with each other. And so we've got, I've got to take care of this. And I'm going to do that through my follower, Timothy. Now, it's important to note that the passage that James read this morning, um, which is from the second chapter of the letter out of six, so this is just a small portion of this longer letter, that Paul is initially dealing with prayer. So Paul says, you know, when you pray, the men, and qualifies that the men should raise their hands in praise to God, because this was a notable way of praying during this period, to raise their hands in praise to God. And then he kind of detours, right? He starts telling women how they're supposed to dress and don't wear the pearls and gold and all that. So there must have been some women at Ephesus who were styling, you know. They must have been dressing up. Well, that's no worse than some of our television preachers today who are wearing several thousand dollar tennis shoes. Have you heard about them? Have you seen and read about them wearing the expensive tennis shoes? Well, you know, if if Paul was writing a letter to the Christian church in America today, I'm thinking Paul would say, you need to raise your hands and you need to be prayerful before God and praise God. And oh, by the way, quit wearing those multi-thousand dollar tennis shoes. Uh, So I think we have to pull back and look at this now. Um, Paul is a product of his time and his culture. A a culture in which uh, the men prevailed and men were at the high place of the pecking order. Now that doesn't excuse some of what happens but it does help us better understand these disturbing verses are associated oftentimes with a radical conservative letter uh, and ideas that are found in 1 Corinthians and if you want to get your hair curled you better read that one too. Um, and, and Paul is influenced by the household codes and the codes of proper domestic behavior, which were very common at that period. Um, well, common and popular of the period, and popular at least for men. That's all I have to say. Now, we might deduce that Paul meant that the women he is referring to in in, in in terms of their outward dress and expression, um, that they've wandered away from authentic prayer because that's how he starts. And so he's trying to call people back to authentic prayer and praise of God. And he wants people to focus on praising and loving God uh, who has been revealed in Jesus Christ. Now, we also might consider that Paul's Uh, instruction on women to keep silence and not having authority over a man is reflective of what he understands to be happening in in this church in Ephesus. And he's offering it as a corrective. Now, unfortunately, in in the thousands of years, or the many hundreds of years, more than 2,000 years since this letter was written, people have decided to take this little bit of text and make it absolute and applicable above, to all women for all time. So women can't preach, and they can't have authority over men, 
in the church and they can't teach any men. And there are denominations still today that practice that. And, uh, and yet, if you take a good look behind the scenes at most churches and most denominations, you will find that women are running the church. They're the ones that are showing up. They're the ones taking care of things. They're the one organizing things. And yet, they can't preach. But is Beth Moore preaching? You better believe she's preaching. She is preaching the gospel. And she's helping people grow in their faith and understand. Now, I want to... And Paul concludes this section with a sort of distorted referencing of the story of Adam and Eve. I mean, it's pretty distorted. And I shudder to think about how these words fell on the ears of women who could not or chose not to bear children, because that's what he ultimately comes to, that, that a woman's worth is in childbearing. Well, you might think that there's no good news here, but have I got some good news for you. I also ran across an article entitled Adam's Rib or Women's Lib, which I thought was so funny because if we take the story of Adam and Eve and look carefully at it, we find out that, yes, uh, evil seduced, the the snake seduced Eve into uh, tasting the fruit of the tree of good and evil, and that was a violation of God's instruction. But then Adam went right along with her. I mean, and that's always overlooked. Adam, Eve is considered the great culprit in, in the issues of sin by this one act. And yet nobody talks about Adam going right along with her down that hole. And we probably ought to. You know, and here's what happens. When women finally were given the opportunity to read and study scriptures, which they've been doing for years and years and years, um... All of a sudden, the scriptures were opened because women heard and saw things that men did not. Well, as in the story of Adam and Eve. Eve, yes, succumbs to the seduction of evil and offers the same thing that was offered to her to Adam, and Adam also falls into that trap. And we need to say that. We need to say that in the story of Esther, before Esther became queen, there was another queen of the king by the name of Vashti. And when all the king and all the king's men were getting drunk and at a big party, and he demanded that she come before him without any clothes on, she said, no, I will not. And she kind of got cast out for that, but, but Vashti is never spoken of. We don't get to hear her story how she stood up to the Lotharios at the king's banquet. And then there is the violence against the daughters of Lot. For be it from Lot to uh, let his guests who were men uh, take on the crowd who were calling uh, for them to come out and be sexually abused. Oh, no, here, take my virgin daughters. But we don't talk about those things until women scholars began to raise this up and hold it up as a picture. And then there is a story of the warrior Judith and the prophet Deborah. But one of my favorite stories is the story of Manoah's wife. You might have never even heard of Manoah. Manoah 
and his wife were the parents of Samson, who was considered one of the prophets. And one day, Manoah's wife is minding her own business, and an angel of the Lord comes to her and says, you're going to have a baby, and he needs to be pure. He can't have any drink. He can't, he's going to be a Nazarite. He can't do any of these bad things. Uh, and so she goes and tells her husband, and he says, well, why did, she come, why did the angel come to you? And Manoah's wife says, I don't know, but the angel came to me. And so he says, well, we need to ask God to send the angel again uh, so that I can be told. And so the angel comes again to Manoah's wife. And, and Manoah is really put out with this. And, and Manoah's wife goes to him and says, you know, I'm... And here's how it ends. The angel comes a third time and the, Manoah says to him, are you the man who spoke to this woman? And the angel said, I am. Then Manoah said, now when your words come true, what is to be the boy's rule of life? Well, the angel's already said that twice to the woman and he's not taking it. And then he said, and then, so the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, let the woman give heed to all that I said to her. Don't you just love that? But we don't get to hear that story. And Manoah's wife goes unnamed in scripture. Then there's a woman who debates with Jesus, the Syrophoenician woman, a Gentile who begs Jesus to cast a demon out of her daughter. And when Jesus refuses, she challenges him and that says that even dogs get the crumbs under the table. And Jesus is so moved that he changes his mind and heals her daughter. And the Samaritan woman encountering Jesus at the well, they have a high theological discussion that results in her witnessing to her community about the man who knew everything about her. And then, of course, there is a woman who anoints Jesus near the end of his life. And Jesus ends that time by saying, Truly I tell you, wherever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. And yet, none of those women get names. But then there's Mary Magdalene, apostle to the apostles. And there were other women, Joanna and Susanna and more at the cross. They didn't leave. They didn't flee. They stood there and were with Jesus as he died. Okay? And Mary Magdalene testified to the disciples what she witnessed and knew to be true. According to the work of Dr. Anna Carter Florence, the testimony was received in scripture, it's told, as an idle tale. And Carter Florence says, if you go back to the original Greek, you'll understand that what it really meant was it was BS, that it was that strong. It was so strong that they just rushed it off. But then Peter gets up and goes to see for himself. Now listen, testimony does that. It causes those who hear the testimony to go and discover for themselves this is how we should think about evangelism. All we have to do is tell our story, what we know to be true about God, what we know and know how to love in God's name, and let the other, let the other people go and see for themselves. 
And then there's Paul. You think he was carrying on about these women, and we're not even sure he wrote the letter in the first place, but if you go and read his other letters, there's Priscilla and her husband, Achilla, who are mentioned six times in the Bible as missionary partners to Paul. And then there's Julia and Phoebe and Junia and Chloe and Euodia and Syntyche, partners with Paul in his ministry, and these are just the ones named. And then there's Lydia of Philippi, who was a wealthy dealer in purple cloth, who after hearing Paul preach, she and her whole household were baptized, and it is believed she actually funded his missionary ministry. And yet, for centuries, because of the patriarchal culture in which the stories emerged, and the writings of Paul, and particularly Paul's disciples, and the insistence of trying to read scripture literally and as absolute, women were not, and in some denominations and churches are still not, allowed to be leaders, to preach, to teach, even though they deserve to. What, what, what? What are we supposed to say about this? I know what I say. Still, they persisted. Because let me tell you something. If these women hadn't been powerful in their own rights, if their stories had not been, been compelling, we would have none of this. We would have no names. We would have nothing. We would have absolutely nothing. And sometimes light breaks through. 